I'm not talking about the dust on the cover, but the dust that comes as you follow the Bible through, into and through the wilderness. You ever notice how much of the Bible is set in the context, actually, of the wilderness? That no man's land that followed the experience of the Exodus when God intruded into history through the man of his choice, confronted a totalitarian regime, brought his people through death, through waters of baptism, and into freedom. And as you come across the Red Sea, there were no fast tracks. You had to walk. And we're following Israel over these few weeks out into the wilderness to see what we've got to learn there. And we're going somewhere tonight because it's quite deliberate. God brought them from Pharaoh's land into literally no man's land, that there would be nothing extraneous, no diversions, no distractions, that in the midbar they would hear the dabar. In the wilderness they would hear God as they would not hear him anywhere else. And as he brings them out into the wilderness, you see, and he teaches them to walk with him, we're coming tonight into territory where a lot of people have never been. And, I, and in some ways, I feel a lot of Christians have never been. We're coming into territory that we actually call freedom. We give sort of nominal allegiance to the theory, but we don't live as if we really know freedom. Come with me, because we're coming into the very depths of the wilderness. And as you stand on the edge, can you imagine to think your way back into the position of an Israelite? You've just crossed the Red Sea. You're now entering into this vast, vast, vast territory. It's huge. And after the oppression of Egypt, after 24-7 being slaves, you now are invited to explore freedom that God gives you. But you see, what's involved in stepping out into freedom? It literally was stepping out into the great unknown. If you've ever experienced in the wilderness, and I wish, oh, I just wished we could take off tonight and explore it. It is so vast. It's kind of so awe-inspiring. And you are literally stepping into something that is unknown and quite scary. You have followed the man of God's choice. You think about Moses being appointed as the man of God's choice to lead his people out into the wilderness. And in one sense, you know, whether you're following Moses or ultimately you're following the one who led the great exodus and greater than Moses, Jesus, it has never been easy to step out into the unknown following the man or the one of God's choice. So as you step in, we're a little bit apprehensive because this is uncharted territory. It's no wonder that sort of one, I think, a wonderful Jewish thinker who's given us a rich heritage, and really it would pay you dividends, even as Christians, to, to, to read him. He lived and died and an Orthodox Jew, but all oh, the writings of Abraham Heschel are so phenomenally rich. 
And having studied the wilderness, he wrote a book called The Insecurity of Freedom. You see, when you're faced with this great big unknown, it's a scary place to be. Yes, the chains of Egypt were broken. They're stepping out now to follow God into freedom. But can they cope with the freedom that lies ahead? You know, kind of without making an ass of myself, it was the wild donkeys that taught me something about freedom. We were out in the middle of the wilderness and we had been watching for them for a little while and then a couple of wild horses appeared. And I was standing with a guide I've I've known for some time and I happened to say to him, Arthur, now this may seem a very kind of dumb question and he wasn't surprised. But he says, I said to him, look, look out there. I mean, this is vast. This is just so vast. Can you explain to me why there are just so many paths? These horses, they literally can run anywhere. They have the freedom of this huge place. It's a huge playground, no fences, nothing. Can you explain to me, because, you know, I'm a tiny, why? With all this freedom, do they follow these paths through the wilderness? Oh, he says, Desi, don't you realize these are wild horses? They are not shoed. They don't have the metal shoes that other domesticated horses have. He says, when they run wild, if they hit a stone and they damage their hoof. That limits their ability to travel. That obviously limits their ability to get food. And if they don't eat and they can't get water, they die. So they have learned to follow paths that have been well-worn because they know there, there are no kind of destructive elements. And I got to thinking myself, you know, when you look at the wilderness and you see such a vast scope, what a wonderful kind of lesson. Because it made me think about walking with God, whether you're in the ancient world with Israel or you're walking with God today. How do we walk with him? Because you see, as we deal with the freedom, I'm not sure that humanly we always have the maturity to do it. We have kind of this innate uh, uh, ability or this innate longing that either we go sort of wild or the other extreme is we become kind of so legalistic that we turn walking with God into walking a tightrope. And it becomes an absolutely joyless experience. Now, for those of you who are visiting from, you know, in Northern Ireland, from Asia, or those of you who've you know, be sure Motherland invites you back to the co- from the colonies. And John Bryan, feel at home with us. But, you know, when you begin to think about this, in so many parts of the world, do you ever meet these Christians? Do you ever meet these people? You know, there must be Christians. For nobody else can look that miserable. <laughs> oh, we, we get them in the province without stereotyping. You know them. 
Oh, you can see them coming. They're not a lot of joy. Oh, but then they'll tell, oh, we've got the joy. But you'd need an oil rig to get anywhere near it. So it's this kind of purely legalistic experience. I'm a Christian now. Don't enjoy myself too much. Or the other extreme, you become so assimilated into the culture, there's nothing to really set you apart. There is this innate tendency, well, you know, we'll turn Christianity almost, we'll turn walking with God into a tightrope. And we've, after all, haven't we got the rule book? And the Bible degenerates into a kind of a legalistic code. Just a book of rules, which we'll dip into. Isn't it a bit of a tragedy? See, the wilderness kind of challenged me that way. Here they were being brought out into this vast freedom. They have such scope, and yet within that scope, there are safe paths. And that the psalmist could rejoice, you know, Lord, you lead me in paths of righteousness. They are safe places. So the wilderness is an awful lot to teach us. And I want to bring you back into it tonight because I would love you to develop a habit of reading the Bible with both eyes or listening in stereo is another way of putting it that when we begin to develop this ability to read both testaments, as it were, at once, maybe it's an anatomical impossibility to have simultaneous reading of both testaments, but to be at least now attuned to the possibility of listening to both testaments. And that's why as we come out into the wilderness again this evening, I'd suggest to you, you see, that the book of Numbers and the experience of Israel in the wilderness cannot be separated from the wilderness experiences that we're going to meet then in the New Testament. It's not an accident that when you set both scriptures side by side, that you have got Israel, the nation, having been delivered from the Egyptian bondage, immediately brought out into the wilderness. And at a very significant point in the ministry of Jesus, he is taken out into the wilderness. We're sort of presupposing here the link between the corporate, namely Israel, and the individual representative of Israel, namely and ultimately the true Israel, Jesus himself. And when you begin to make this linking, you see whether you're in the Torah or in you're in the Gospels, at strategic points, the one of God's choice is brought into the wilderness. Because it's in that wilderness, no man's land, that God has some profound lessons to actually teach us. Just for a moment, come out into the wilderness in the days of ancient Israel. And when you come out here, and as you journey, remember, as you step onto the pages of the Torah, it's as if God's unfolding plan is like a roadway that is leading towards the fulfillment of promise. Remember, that's where we're going to in the book of Joshua. I don't believe Joshua is a type or a picture of heaven. 
You don't fight battles in heaven, but it is, I think, a wonderful picture of promises. And God is leading his people towards the fulfillment of promises. And you see, where God is at work, you're always journeying towards the fulfillment of his promises. Now, do you notice on the journey towards the fulfillment of these promises, particularly in the book of Numbers, you find God feeding them. God is not so super spiritual that he forgets we have actually bodily needs. He actually feeds them. He gives them manna. Above all, he meets one of the foundational, fundamental needs of the human body. In the wilderness, he gives them water. And in the vastness of it all, he provides the pillar, cloud by day and fire by night, where God will actually lead them. Now, I can only encourage you, take time to read the book of Numbers, journey into the wilderness, and get a sense of the significance, you know, of of the bread and of the water and of the fiery pillar. Now, with that in mind, then take the scriptures as a whole. I'm not so sure that we're good at that. We sort of have been conditioned, particularly in Western evangelicalism, we're we're sort of trained, and Bible reading notes, while they have their value, sometimes can be a wee bit unhelpful because they basically condition us to read it, what's in this for me today? And we get a very itsy-bitsy approach that leads to kind of proof texting and isolation and, oh, here's a lovely wee thought for, you know, today, and here's a little verse I could put in a calendar, and here's a little verse in a promise box. And and we get a collection that the Bible virtually becomes a collection of of wee words. Those of you who are visiting and studying in Northern Ireland, you'll discover one of our favorite words in Northern Ireland is we. You'll notice when you go into a restaurant, would you like a wee seat? Now, they're not any weeer than the others. They're all the same size. And would you like a wee menu? And when you're finished, would you like the wee bill? And you'll hear people going out after church, wasn't that a great wee word? I was in a coffee shop recently with a friend who is six and a half feet. It's a big man. I look like something that's fallen off his lapel when we stand beside him. (laughs) And Gordon got a coffee. Do you know one of these really big ones, these, these big French cups you can take a bath in? And Gordon brought it to the check. I, they set it down. I could see the girl. She looked at the coffee. And she looked up at Gordon. And she looked back at the coffee. Looked back up at Gordon. Is that a wee large coffee you got? (laughs) And you see, sometimes we read the Bible that way. Isn't that a lovely wee verse? Isn't that a lovely wee word? Isn't that a... With the result, you see, we miss the big picture. We miss the fact that when we open this, we are being invited to participate in a cosmic drama on something on such a universal scale that is sweeping from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to a new heaven to a new earth. Get the bigness of this. 
Take off the blinkers. Challenge the myopia. Challenge the reductionism that thinks the only message of this is about an individual existential moment with Jesus that will guarantee life in the sweet by and by. We forget this revelation on such a scale. So when we're reading the text as a whole, then we begin to see, oh, our approach changes because as we look at Israel's experience, this isn't simply history. And incidentally, what is absolutely fascinating is biblical Hebrew doesn't even have a word for history. Modern Hebrew does. They simply copy an English word, historia. But biblical Hebrew has no word for history because history is what's happened to other people in other places at other times. They only have the word for memory because memory is what's happened to us. Memory belongs to our family, our line. So when we open the Hebrew Bible as Christians, we are tapping into the family album. It's not remote. It's part of the story we are invited to participate in. And so that Israel's experience is related in a very fundamental way to the profound realities of Christian experience. And you see this, particularly as you listen to 1 Corinthians. When you, particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But before we get there, think of the relationship of the ancient text to the modern world. Think of the relationship of Israel's experience in the wilderness and then Jesus' experience in the wilderness. This becomes so profound. When we think of Israel, the nation, being taken out into the wilderness, it's not accidental that in the Gospels we read of Jesus being taken out into the wilderness. Literally, the text tells us he was ballistically almost propelled out into the wilderness. And what was he going to learn? What was the man going to learn in the wilderness? Well, this is where the Gospel of John is just quite astounding. And when you read John and are prepared to listen to both testaments at once, it just amazes you what you're going to discover, particularly about Jesus. You see, for so many years, up to very, very recent kind of history in the world of academia, oh, John was kind of heralded as probably the most Greek of all the Gospels. Now it's realized that John is possibly the most Hebraic and the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Because when you begin to study Jesus as he's presented by John, isn't it very, very striking that John's presentation of Jesus, as he comes up to Jerusalem, on each of Jesus' visits to Jerusalem, it's primarily in connection with a major Jewish festival. Passover. Whatever all the major festivals. And remember Jesus, not as a Western European post-enlightenment Protestant, but as a first century Torah observant synagogue attending Jewish villager, would have participated in the cycle of the Jewish year. This was part of his fabric. 
And when you look at this cycle from Le Leviticus 23, it provides an essential background for what's going on, you see, in the John's Gospel. This is why it's one of the tragedies and travesties to just print New Testament separate. I know the intention's good, and I don't, I'm not judging that, but it's unfortunate because you're effectively saying, look, here's the river, but it has no source. Here's a house. You don't need foundations. Here's a tree. You don't need roots. And we isolate rather than richly see the continuity of God's big plan. And when you look at the cycle of the Jewish festivals, incidentally, obviously based on Leviticus 23, it's a circle. And there's a way in which you can actually read Psalm 23. We usually read it, and he leads me in paths of righteousness. It actually can be read, and he leads me in circles or cycles of righteousness through which he refreshes me. Is that the psalmist's allusion to the fact that the observance of these festivals during the year when they would put times in their diary and they would meet and they would eat with God because only one of them is a solemn kind of fast. Only one of them is very, well, they're all serious, but most of them are about kind of joy and eating and celebration. And how does God refresh his people in the cycle of the year? I think it's wonderful. Where have we got to this stage where so much about Christianity is, is sort of morose, it's morbid, here is a cycle of celebrations. When did you last get excited about Leviticus? <laughs> and yet in God's kindergarten, he's saying, come, we'll celebrate together. I've brought you out of Egypt, and now put into your diary these times, and I'll refresh you. Now, when you come to read John's Gospel, and we don't have time to read it all, but I just want to, to take you on a journey tonight through three chapters in John's Gospel. And each of these three chapters, when you look at them sequentially, what becomes very striking is that each one of them in sequence deals with the same issues that were dealt with in Numbers in the wilderness. Because when you read John chapter 6, first of all, it's in this context, very much the context he has just been, he has fed the 5,000. If you've your text handy, by all means open it. But then take time and, and allow it to marinate you later on. It begins, Jesus crossed to the shore, the, the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. A great crowd of people followed him. Now look at the timing of chapter 6, verse 4. The Jewish Passover feast was near. So chapter 6 is against the background of the Passover. And Jesus, what happened at Passover, out of the Exodus, he brought them to Mount Sinai, to the mount that spoke of freedom. It spoke of a love affair, the intimacy, the mutuality, the reciprocity of a marriage relationship. Is the illusion lost on us that Jesus went up the mountain, even when he was teaching about, you know, the Sermon on the Mount? He seems to be deliberately setting it against this background. The background of the Exodus is absolutely central to the entire New Testament. And when you begin to look at this way, even the calendar was altered that the Jewish New Year was to begin grounded in the liberation of the people from oppression. 
And at the heart of that liberation from oppression was, of course, the death of the Passover lamb, the painting of the doors with blood. Is it just accidental that John presents Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? It was in the context of this Passover meal that, of course, well, it was really the first fast food experience. Do you ever think about it? I mean, I'm of the age now. We went to study in North America for a number of years. When I left Balamina, we, we had never heard of McDonald's. Now, of course, McDonald's is everywhere, and we're loving it. But you see, fast food, we thought that was an American idea. No. No, that was a biblical idea. Because to get them out of Egypt, God said, here's the first fast food meal. In fact, it will be so fast, don't put leaven into the bread. I want you to make that matzo so fast, you'll even eat it with your shoes on because we're on the way out together. And God provided them bread. Now, it's against that background. Do you see the sheer intricacy, the connectedness, the liberation, the bread, the eating of a meal to celebrate what God has done? It's against that whole context. It's in that matrix that this figure of Jesus steps onto the pages of the New Testament in the first century world. And it wouldn't be lost on his audience when John comes now to write and to describe for us Jesus that he presents Jesus as the bread of life. He's just introduced him as the Lamb of God. Now here he is as the bread. So John chapter 6 is all the context of Jesus as the bread. That would be interesting in and of itself. But then I think it becomes even more fascinating when you move to chapter 7. And what was one of the big issues in the wilderness? Well, of course, you needed water. And you come to John chapter 7, and what's one of the dominant themes that runs through it? Well, it's set against the background of the festival of, 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 of tabernacles in the wilderness, and Jesus here presents himself as the water of life. Now, do you see, the background to John 7 is inevitably Leviticus 23. Israel, we're told, you shall dwell in, in, in booths, tabernacles, tents, temporary dwellings for seven days. And all that are native in Israel shall dwell in booths, and your gener that your generations may know that I have made the people of Israel dwell in these booths, or Sukkot. And you see, this is to teach them about the Exodus experience. That once a year they would live for seven days in these temporary dwellings. What were they called to evoke? The wilderness experience, where God had them to live. Intense. Never ever forget that defining moment when God intruded into history to set you free. And to this day, of course, in Jewish tradition, they build the sukkah, the temporary little brew that you can sit in and look through the kind of open roof and, and see the stars. Do you see do you see a master pedagogue at work? This wasn't somebody who delivered an obtrusive academic lecture, he said, look, I'll teach them through what they wear, what they eat, how they live. 
And you know, for seven days a year, I'll put them in these temporary dwellings and, and they'll remember I had them in the wilderness. I provided for them. I taught them. I wanted to draw them into an intimate relationship with, with me. And you see, it's in the context of that festival. It was on the last day of that festival, John tells us in chapter 7, on the last great day of that, Jesus invited all who were thirsty to come to him and drink. Now, why the thirst? Why the invitation to drink of him? Well, an integral part of the festival of booze or tabernacles or Sukkot is what's called a libation ceremony. And what happened each day during the festival, the priests would walk down from the Temple Mount, they would come down what was really the Turapoean Valley to the Pool of Siloam. And there at the Pool of Siloam, they would gather water. And incidentally, fairly recently, the first half of the Pool of Siloam has just been excavated. To the left-hand side, it yet hasn't been excavated. It still belongs to, uh, to some Arab landowners who, who won't agree. But you see the right-hand steps? These were the steps down into the Pool of Siloam. And what is fascinating, just at the top of these steps today, you can enter a tunnel and you can walk up that tunnel. It's almost a kilometre. And you come out right at the southwestern corner of the temple steps. It's a tunnel that followed that street. The priests carried the water up. Now, I don't know where in the world you kind of get excited about walking up a kind of a drainage ditch. But there, it's a phenomenally exciting. They found a, a pomegranate bell that they, wasn't from a priest. They found a, a 50 centimeter Roman sword. They found a piece of graffiti with a, a, a temple menorah on it. This is one of these kind of drainage. You walk up and you follow this pathway. And as you follow this up, when they got up to the temple, as part of the festival, they would have poured out the water. And as they poured out the water on a daily level, it was in a sense a symbolic gesture. It was a symbolic, a symbolization of Ezekiel's vision that one day such richness would pour out from God. And it's in this context, Jesus stands up and says, I'm the water. You're thirsty? Come to me. See the richness of this background? Because then out of the believer's heart will flow these rivers of water, as he was talking about the Holy Spirit. So you've got John 6, the bread. You've got John 7, the water. Here, when you look at this context, is John just describing Jesus with sort of relying on his own ingenuity? Or is John deliberately presenting Jesus to us in terms that were so familiar to any reader of the Hebrew Bible? The bread, the water. And then, because this isn't where it stops, as one great Western thinker by the name of James Cricket. You know Jimmy Cricket? There's more. There's more. Because come to chapter 8. And remember the bread and the water in the wilderness? 
But then there was the pillar of cloud. There was something that led them and guided them. An integral part of the festival of booze was a lightning ceremony that took place in the court of the temple. Because what happened was that there were great, four great lights that were placed inside the women's court. These had such intensity that young priests would carry you know, flagons of oil up to the top, they would pour them in, and these then would be lit. And they would give out such a light over the entire city of Jerusalem that even the Jerusalem Talmud, the collection of Jewish tradition, actually said there is not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the Bet Hashueva, of the, the water-drawing ceremony. And as they would light these lights, it would go all over the city. They said in the Talmud, there was flute playing in the house of drawing. They said anyone who's never seen in his life the rejoicing in the house of drawing has never seen rejoicing. The Hasdim, the men of deeds, they would dance before them with flaming torches in their hands. They would sing before them songs and praises. And the Levites beyond the counting, you know, played on harps and lyres, cymbals and, and trumpets and other musical instruments. The celebration. It's in this context, in this wonderful context, Jesus again stands up and he says, I am the light. I am the light. Do you see how incomprehensible the words and the actions of Jesus are? Apart from this background. So you see John absolutely saturated by this background. Here he is, the bread, the water, and the one who will lead. So as you span that gap between Israel's experience and indeed the 21st century today, and you take time to look at the scripture as a whole, where do we live? Well, where did ancient Israel live? Between the intrusion of God into history in the Exodus and the fulfillment of promises in the book of, of Joshua. Where do we live between the intrusion of God into history in the ultimate exodus and a greater than Moses in Jesus? And as we journey towards the fulfillment of his promises. It's a journey on which, well, he provided Israel with bread and with water and indeed with guidance. And today, as we walk with that same God, don't we live in need of that provision because we shall not live by bread alone, but, or by stuff alone, but by his word and his provision. He becomes the source of life-giving water. He becomes the light of the world. Where do we live? We live between an exodus event and a promise that's yet to be fulfilled. And what can we learn? Because whether we're in the ancient Israel wilderness, whether we're in the depths of the Negev, or whether we're here in the midst of the 21st century, what is the message that comes so very clearly and is distinctive to our faith? It is in Jesus. You get the bread that has come from heaven. 
You get the very water of life. You get the one who is the way, the truth, the life. He is the guide. When we're prepared to stand with a foot on the ancient wilderness and a foot in modernity, do you see the timelessness of this message? You begin to see how that wilderness was an extended kindergarten where God had so much to teach us. And today, you see, as we look and as we can reread those Hebrew scriptures through the lens of what Jesus has done for us, as we live our lives between that exodus and that promise, here is God giving us this wonderful encouragement to keep going, to keep focused, because we are very much the people of his promise. We're a people set free, living between what he has done and what he will bring to a consummation at a point that's yet to come. So what's one of the messages of the wilderness? It's keep walking. Keep walking. Keep focusing. Next week, well, we'll look at just some of the practicalities of that because the book of Hebrews takes us back into the wilderness to encourage us how to keep going. So let's keep on the journey and make Jesus the center and the focus of it.